Welcome to our newest episode of A Conversation With, which is our Zing Learning podcast. We get together once a fortnight with inspiring individuals to chat about what they're doing in their careers, but also how they're enhancing equality, diversity, inclusion, and belonging. We chat about important DI topics and get practical advice and tips so we can give DI teams, HR leaders, and leaders of organizations a greater opportunity to create a fairer, more inclusive, and more knowledgeable working environment. Today, I'm joined by Gareth, who runs a fantastic organization called Taylor Education. He works to provide relationships and sex education, delivery, training and consultancy, and works with lots of different types of young people to provide some really fantastic conversational spaces. I've known Gareth now for a little while and I fell in love with the work that he does with Taylor Education. So without further ado, kick back, grab a cuppa and enjoy this podcast and all of the fantastic insights that Gareth shares. Hey Gareth, I met you at the start of 2020 um, and that was when our business Zing started using Impact Brixton as our base for our offices. Uh, You and I were in the same office, we hit it off straight away, well at least in my opinion anyway, Um, and and had some really insightful conversations around lots of different important topics to do with that kind of being a human being uh, and our experiences. Um, But one of the things I really fell in love with was the incredible work that you do around relationships and sex education and in that space with your company, Taylor Education. So today I'd just love to talk about that a little bit. And before we get into it, I'd love to know a little bit more about your career so far and what's kind of led you to this point with with setting up the business? My career in sex education started when I've not long after I first moved to London, which would have would have been about maybe 13, 14 years ago. I was going to be a photographer, was my plan, to be an artist photographer, but I was working in, in not a very nice call centre. And my aunt, who worked for a, a charity, one of the biggest sexual health charity in the country called Brooke. She was working for them, um, delivering sex education in schools, and she thought I'd be good at it and convinced me to come along to a training. I went along, did a two-day training with um, some really great um, people and really enjoyed it, found it really interesting and definitely felt I had the, the, the skills to be able to to talk, you know, to I, I wasn't embarrassed to talk about that stuff and it was, you know, as long as I knew what I was talking about, I didn't mind. So then I actually started to volunteer for Brooke one hour a week following that training. And then I started to get paid for ad hoc bits of work. And then a full-time position came up that I didn't know I wasn't, you know, like that thing about being young, you don't know what you're not qualified for, if that makes sense. So I, I, I kind of went in with all these ideas, not knowing anything about like budgets or local councils and their rules or you know, all the stuff came with loads of ideas of how this project could be delivered and got the job. And then just found out it was, just found a massive passion for it. Just a huge passion to do that. Then chapter two, I guess, is when Brooke as a charity, I think it was as a place to work when I was working there was was incredible, like amazing. I used to go, all of us used to go on our days off sometimes just to be in the office, just to be around those people and, and wow. you know, share ideas and we'd, just it was just a really amazing space to be in and 
weirdly, the office was actually here in Brixton. And then I think the session had already hit, but the effects of it were now starting to get felt throughout like um, local governments. And I think Brooke had made the decision to change its structure. And I'm not going to say whether it was positive or negative, but it did lead to a lot of people examining their positions and choosing to leave or choosing to, to do other work or find work that was outside of charity. Because, you know, a lot of the project-based work, two, three-year contracts, and I think a lot of people wanted to, maybe just wanted things that were more permanent, or some people disagreed with the direction that the charity was going in, like, you know, just normal stuff. But what it meant, rightly or wrongly, was there was a lot of really talented, experienced practitioners who were leaving, and they weren't leaving all to the same place, so that, so that we didn't, no one was keeping tabs of their contact details or, like, what their work you know and so when i when i decided to leave i had a choice between doing the same thing and applying for other jobs or or starting something myself in the hope that i could keep hold of all this great talent all these people who are far more experienced than me my, my dream for taylor was to start something that would enable me to keep hold of all these people that would enable me to get freelance work for them and, and basically keep us all working together keep that that amazing office vibe that we had Cool. So what do you think it was then about all of you working together? And you said clearly they were incredibly talented. What was it that made you go in on your days off? Was it the passion of everyone and the work that they were doing? What was it? Yeah, I think what I've noticed about different workspaces, I think managers hire people who are similar to them in some way. And I think, again, I'm not saying that's a good thing, but I think what it meant was that there was a lot of us who were just... We just had stuff in common, like like that like you and I, right? It's it's not. I don't think it's a it's an accident that we both work in in the same kind of world, and we both share a lot of the same views, and we both, and we were able to even when we disagree, there's a certain way that we're able to disagree and respect each other's views, and it just that just happens, I think. And in, in our office, it was talking to you and being in the sharing an office with you is like times that by about twenty, and that's what the office was like here in Brixton is that. You, we're all in the same world. We're all there trying to, not to sound ridiculous, but trying to make the world better in some way. And um, and all able to share ideas and riff off each other about how to, how best to do that. And sometimes you'd, it'd be, you've got this thing, you need to explain uh, the changes of puberty to young people who, who have severe learning disabilities, for example. And then you've got an office of people who you can shout up and say, guys, I'm really struggling with this. And everyone has an idea and everyone, and not just idea, an idea that is fun and engaging and, you know, always trying to make things better. So, yeah, I think it was just a great place to be. And we wouldn't go on our days off because we were rushed off our feet and we had to, you know, we couldn't stop working. It was more just, it was just, you don't want to miss any anything. You don't want to miss any great stuff that yeah. might be happening in the office. And it's a, it's a an energy to be around, right? Like yeah, you can take yeah. some of that in, I, and that's definitely how I felt here at Impact because you know there were days when I probably was like, oh no, I should I should work from home today. But I said, no, I want I want the buzz. I need the people no, yeah. and that sharing ideas and and I, I don't know exactly the word you just used, but you were basically inferring that you know it might sound a bit cheesy if we're trying to do something for the world, we're trying to make a difference, but that is genuinely what we're trying to do and what a lot of people here are trying to do. So I totally get why you would feel like that in a room full of people that were doing similar type of work to you. 
it really does boost you it did it gives you that motivation yeah for sure for sure mm. i definitely miss that like in terms of having a common a common goal like i've got other companies with other teams and and that i'm running and it's great we have a common goal but when the common goal is like quote unquote less noble not that i think i'm noble but like when the goal is less noble than than you know teaching people about well-being and sex and relationships it can it just it doesn't feel as it doesn't feel the same yeah it doesn't feel as meaningful yeah 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 no exactly yeah um i used to work as a head of learning and development and i've had loads of experience helping people develop and i remember i always loved that i got loads out of that but it was only when i started doing the dni work and i started going wow actually it can really make a difference like i can really impact something mm. here that then made me realize that this is so much more meaningful than what I initially thought was meaningful. Yeah. So I, yeah, I completely resonates with me. Um, you mentioned puberty there and you mentioned working with um, people with learning disabilities. Um, your organization covers a massive breadth of topics in this area. Um, yeah. I'm just going to name a few. Um, so we've got things like FGM, um, we've got a appropriate touch masculinity things like male privilege contraception puberty you've already said even things like friendships um lgbt plus awareness all of that the list goes on there's a lot more than that so i'm really interested to hear because you talk to a lot of people about what we would class as taboo topics and i'm just doing air quotes mm -hmm. for, for the listeners right now um which topic have you noticed sparks the most kind of light bulb moments for the students that you work with the the thing that came to mind immediately and unfortunately in some ways is consent you wouldn't think that you would have so many light bulb moments but unfortunately with consent you really do and it's on both sides of oh, it's on both sides if there are two sides i have i will always have a mem it's an enduring memory that i have and it hasn't just happened once but i remember distinctly the first time it happened when i was given a consent lesson three young men in that in that lesson but one who was particularly emotionally impacted by it realized he had had sex without consent and that's how i'm saying it for this you know in, in a courtroom it would be said another way right if, if that had come out in that way and he genuinely didn't realize that when i described all the ways in which somebody might be resisting or or saying no without non-verbally saying no and all the ways in which perpetrators can read those things or uh, all the ways that they can choose not to read those things and or whatever like i think you know what i'm talking about i don't know if, if i should explain more but he was just uh speechless at kind of like remembering this one incident and realizing that that person di didn't hadn't given consent and was and was actively saying that but not saying it you know and and he was he was really caught up about it and and similarly and equally you have libel moments with primarily young women who realize that they've been through something where they didn't give consent, where they didn't want to give consent, where they didn't want it to happen. And I think, I think, and, and, and have been, have been uh, able to put it, you know, put it out of their mind, been able to move on with life, to be fine with the person, to, to you know, in, in the lesson unearthing that actually that wasn't okay. And that's a big, big part of a lot of the stuff, a lot of the more, difficult topics. It's like giving people permission to feel a certain way about an experience or to say, yeah, the way that you remember it is, that is what it is, you know? And mm. so consent 
consent's the one that is like one of the most important, but also one of the most heartbreaking to get into. Yeah. Um, from both sides. Both sides, yeah. Mm-hmm. Both sides. Yeah. That's so raw, isn't it? And I think, like you said, it's it's so impactful on the different parties. And I know I speak for myself and every single woman that I know um, that is aware of consent and is aware of all of the nuances within consent that it's happened to us. It's happened to all of us in so many different ways. So, yeah, for that young lad to understand that and for for that um, young woman to understand what happened. It's interesting. And I was talking to someone recently about the whole Me Too movement and about how even for those of us that felt like we were really aware of all of those things, actually it kind of made us go, wow, no, hold on, that's happened to me too. And and excuse the the pun, that's that's where yeah. it comes from, but that genuinely happened. And you're like, wow, that's not okay. That was never okay. But because it was so the norm and it was almost bred into men from a young age that this is the way to behave around women. Obviously not all men, of course, but as a general rule, you know, women are supposed to behave in this gender conforming way and men are supposed to behave in this gender conforming way. And I think that's a big part of the challenge, but yeah. Mm-hmm. Wow. Okay. Yeah. That sounds like quite a big one for you then. Yeah. It's just what, yeah. It's just one of those topics that, Again, it's fortunate. It's definitely fortunate, but it comes out of unfortunate circumstances because consent didn't used to be one of the ones that you know every school requested or even thought about or yeah had an, an, on their tick list. But it became that way because before Me Too, there was other things. There was there was other um, scandals that came up, but it, definitely after Me Too, there's a massive rise in institutions and schools wanting to have consent workshops. You know necessity uh breeds well they say innovation but i guess change right yeah yeah um yeah wow i i would love to be a fly on the wall in one of those lessons and i think that there's something really powerful about a man going in to talk about that as well like i feel like it, it can have such an impact on young men um to hear it from from a different point of view because obviously we hear about these things a lot from the women's point of view, because a lot of the time, unfortunately, it is girls and women that experience this. Yeah. Not all the time, of course, but a lot of the time. So, yeah, I think there is something really powerful in in that. Um, and I remember watching that video on your website for the university. You were talking to the, the rugby team. And it, that video really opened my eyes up as well to how little men and boys are told about consent. And it's, it's very much on... Yeah. In that mindset of the woman and the girl. The workshop we did at King's College, the reason I think that that work was so successful is because we didn't take consent in isolation. And I never really take consent in isolation or, or uh, I'll come back to that how that workshop worked. But I think as a, as a rule, um, the topic of consent, we've focused so long on no. And what I really like focusing on in on is yes. And I think as a just as a starting point for anyone anyone who does this work, anyone who does consent work, the point you're trying to get to with a consent workshop, in my opinion, if you if you want it to be positive and leave people feeling uplifted and not and not upset and not um feeling like sex is impossible, is if you if you in your mind as a facilitator have this idea of yes, I'm the point I'm getting to is that people can actively 
enthusiastically, confidently, without shame, say yes, then your whole frame for how you teach shifts, right? It doesn't mean you don't talk about no and how to say no safely. It doesn't mean you don't talk about um, negotiation. No, it doesn't mean you don't talk about male privilege or, or, or sexual harassment or all those all those negative things. But the point isn't to to to, to focus on no. You know, you, there's a positive way to talk about consent mm. and to teach about consent. So the thing with the the male the work we do with male athletes at King's College, um, I worked with a amazing art activist called um, Phoebe Davis and a sports um, doctor called Alex Bomer. And it was really interesting because that, that work, let me say the objective, let's say, of that work was to teach about sexual harassment and to hopefully see a reduction in sexual harassment by male athletes on campus. That was like the, the, the dream scenario for that work. But the way that we approached it, I think was was the, the piece that I think is um, un, unique and hopefully inspiring to other facilitators is that knowing that we were going to have a, a large group of men athletes in the room, we didn't want to go in and start by talking about sexual harassment and the problems that are happening on campus with their teams. And what we did was we made it about, we, talk, we spoke about what it is to be a man in a general discussion discussion way, what the difficulties of of existing as, as a man or male identifying in this in this world, what restrictions to society or do you can you feel? We challenge each other to kind of rally against some of those things. Um, people express that they wish they could speak to their brothers more and check that they're okay. So we, we challenge each other to do that in the week. We talked about the stereotypes of being a man. We talked about um. So you see it's slowly building, right? The stereotypes have been the man, the restrictions, and we talk about it from a perspective of let's help each other, right? So then as we do that, we talk about toxic masculinity and how that can be a hindrance to men, right? And how it impacts, how it might impact them on the sports field. Like they don't feel they can ex express themselves when they have pain. They don't feel they're allowed to check on their sports, um, their, their teammates if they haven't have a bad game, you know? And so, and, and talked about how that could impact and positively their, their, their results and you know you're building and you're building so you talk about toxic masculinity then you might talk about the effects of toxic masculinity on other people you know and then it's like okay now how does that play out on campus how does that give a framework um oh first of all you talk about male privilege right so if you can explain male privilege through the lens of how it impacts not only people around them but then them, themselves what they could be missing out on by Walking through the through the world with this privilege and not being aware of it, they start to they're far it's far more they're far more open to it, especially after all the work we've done beforehand. You're not going in there saying today I'm going to teach you about male privilege, you know, because you will find half the room just shuts shuts down. But yeah. when they trust you and you've built up this rapport and you've hopefully given a lot of positive work to them, and, and then we start to talk about, talk about male privilege. It's like they really want to know about it, you know. So then you've got this thing about toxic masculinity, totally fine masculinity, and male privilege. This is the concoction. Then you've got the gender norms that have been lived out by women. And then you put that on a campus and you put the sports teams in that mix who are the kind of like alphas on campus. And then when you explain it in that, in the round, in that way, they suddenly, they understand sexual harassment. They, they understand the dynamic. They understand how it occurs, how other people might feel. It's far more 
applicable to them when you <clears throat> do the groundwork of explaining all of that stuff. So then by the time you get to talk about sexual harassment and then and then finally consent, you've laid, yeah, you've really laid the, laid the foundations for actual understanding and hopefully actual behaviour change. And I do think we saw that, at least in the attendees, we couldn't work with every single male athlete at King's College. And what we never, what wasn't shown in the in the research one way or the other is is how much that work impacted the culture. Yeah, yeah. Much bigger ask, you know. But definitely for the attendees, I would say that, I mean, they all said, you know, it impacted their behaviour. That's huge. I think um, a couple of things from what you just said there. I think that idea of them then subconsciously probably in, in some ways going and influencing the other athletes that couldn't come on the course. I imagine that the culture then shifted in that way and, and you know it already worked for the people that attended. And then you've also just, it's really interesting, you were talking a minute ago about male privilege and all of those and it's really interesting because the work I do we also talk about privilege we talk about it in lots of different ways of course and you're right if you just kind of throw the word privilege at people they just like (gasps) they freak out like they just can't deal with it they feel shame and guilt and all of these unhelpful feelings that mean that we can't open a conversation up so yeah we do the same thing with that we we build a little bit of a road we have a bit of a journey we we build that trust so people can can feel like actually let's talk about this yeah. um so and it sounds like it was really successful so that sounds yeah, like the it right was. way to well, do we it. Ran it twice and uh, yeah and it was it was good also what you do and i'm sure what you do as well is you you prove you don't just say oh this is a safe space you can you know you, you won't be judged here or you know blah blah, blah. you prove it over and over again with with really small in small ways every time you don't react negatively to somebody's comment every time you're able to challenge them something in a kind uh an understanding way you you prove to everybody that they're allowed to speak and 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 share and it just you you have to a safe space isn't created by just putting it on a right now on the board yeah, it's essential. I think in, in any of the conversations, you know, I covered some of your topics earlier, any of those conversations, you need that safe space. And the same with, with my stuff. There's there's topics that we do, which when I first started doing them with clients, I thought, oh, well, these aren't contentious. So this is going to be much easier. So I put them earlier on because I thought, well, actually, this is going to be easier for people to have these conversations. It turns out they were. It ter- and, and one of them was around allyship. And I remember thinking, how can people feel negatively about allyship? But it was just such a lack of understanding around what it meant. And because the word privilege is so attached yeah. to allyship, people were very scared to step into it. So we managed to rejig it and do allyship much later. So we we kind of had that really safe, yeah, the evidence that it is a safe space and, and that sort yeah. of thing. But my, yeah. my, my colleague Phoebe, she always talks about brave spaces. Mm. Like she talks about... Um, safe spaces but she says it's a safe space but it's a brave space like we want you to share and 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 we want to be brave enough to to listen and to to challenge you and and, and for you to challenge us like and I, yeah i really like how she she says it better than me but where how she frames that is it's it helps as well you know yeah yeah and i think the way that you're doing it as well in that it's very helpful with we're not going in saying no, we're talking about what yes means. And we, yeah. you know, it's not just for the facilitator to do a good job. That's to help other people reframe it because there's certain things we've been taught from TV and 
from schools when we were younger and from relationships that we see growing up that are unhealthy and it means that we we follow that pattern because that's all we know so actually if we reframe the way we think about it all of a sudden it becomes less taboo and we are much more comfortable to talk about it and share yeah and it, and it also i mean if you talk about consent it also makes it sexier how is it not better after hearing yes or like <laughs> an enthusiastic affirmative at like that's so much better more yeah. like and so that's it's just a really it's a really important shift that I really hope more people more people make in their in their education around consent. Yeah. But, no, yeah. Oh God. Yeah, I totally agree. That in that word enthusiasm, I think that's what most of us want when we're in that yeah, situation. Yeah. yeah. Exactly. <laughs> you don't want like a yeah, sure. Yeah. <laughs> um, and you don't just want the absence of no, right? When I say it's about yes, I'm also talking about encouraging young women to feel brave enough to say yes. And because it, there are some cultures where being too enthusiastic can be seen as a negative thing. Mm. It can be seen as a, a and, or at least can put in their mind that they're going to be judged. And sometimes it's, it's a lot of the work is about challenging that view too and understanding that culture as well. And I feel some people do this, not pretending that culture doesn't exist because it does. In, in, in many cultures, it does. It's there in the same way that in, in, in growing up, a lot of the men in my um, surrounding were raising, try, uh, trying to raise me to be someone who went after, you know, women and, and, you know, just in a really negative way, right? In a really toxic way. There are some, some cultures, mine, and I'm from Jamaican background, mine included, where women are being raised equally to not say what they want, to be ashamed maybe of what they want, to not have the tools to confidently say yes. And that has to be recognised too. Yeah, especially in the communities I'm working in, that has to be recognised, and and I don't think that's a comfortable truth. Sometimes when it comes to our sector, yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, I'm just I'm listening so intently. I'm, I'm obviously the listeners can't see this, but I'm like, yeah, not in my head because yeah. it's it is so prevalent in so many different uh, communities and different cultures and things like that. And I've certainly been made to feel ashamed for the way I've behaved uh, in the past and, and the way that I've maybe talked about sex, talked about relationships, the intimacy and things like that. Um, and yeah, you're, you're kind of told to feel shameful for some of those things. So I absolutely agree. It's a two way conversation. And I think, I think it sounds like the people are getting lots out of this. So yeah, I mean, listen, you know, I'm a massive fan of the work that you do around this. Yeah. So I'm, I'm probably always going to be a little bit biased. I'm always going <laughs> to kind of nod and agree with everything you're saying around this. Not that we agree this, on everything. No, but this, yeah, that's a tricky thing, though. You talk about like me being a man in this, and I think there are there's there is some things I bring to the table as as a as a man. I think there's things I bring to the table as a straight man, and I think there's things I bring to the table as a Jamaican black man too. And it has meant that often in, in the room, I'm challenging really lovely people but who don't have the full picture of the dynamics in other cultures sometimes. For years, you, you're around the same age as me, so for years we lived with with this mantra, no means no, right? But it's not that simple. Yeah, and yeah. if I say that in certain rooms, people would be so scared to let me teach their their young people, right? Because if I if a man says no, oh yeah, no, sometimes this doesn't always mean no, then <laughs> there are all these horrible memories that flood to mind and there's these men that flood to mind and these terrible views that flood to mind and you think is Gareth one of those and it's that's why I hesitate about talking about culture because it's I think in order to re-educate 
people about sex and re-educate women about yes and, and, and men about yes, we have to face the fact that, I'm scared to even say it, you know, on record, but we have to face the fact that in, in for some people, on some days, in some cultures, no doesn't always mean no. And that's a very, very difficult thing to challenge without um, invoking all of those negative, toxic kind of views that have been expressed about no and about women and about, you know, all that blurred line shit, you know? Mm. And that is not what I hope to invoke at all. But there's a danger when when you simplify it, when you simplify anything in, in human relationships down to a, a, a tagline, you're going to lose some stuff and you're going to lose some people. And, and mm. You and lose the, the situational part. You lose the context. You lose the ability to have an, an open conversation. Yeah. And what you're doing here is allowing people to be able to be in a relationship or perhaps they're not and be able to communicate exactly what it is that they want or don't want and and on both sides yeah and i think that's that's the message i'm getting from this conversation yeah Mm. we used to run a a discussion group called taboo or not taboo which i hope to run more of now that covid's over um and you just get a bunch of people in the room and we have some statements up and and each statement would just spark a discussion one of the themes obviously was consent and and one of the statements I remember we used to put up on the on the um, screen was uh, no doesn't always mean no. And then we just let people discuss it, you know, and then we'd also facilitate, obviously, and, and bring it back, bring it home and and kind of guide and guide it to a certain, in a certain extent. But. Yeah, that conversation, that was always a conversation starter. It was never a it was never a black and white. Oh, yeah, everyone just disagreed. You know what I mean? I'm in all it, all sides of the room. So it just shows that that isn't a black and white thing for I most bet that people. Was- fascinating i would love yeah. to repeat. When, when you do them again i'll come and yeah, i will, yeah, yeah definitely cool. want to see what people talk about i think i definitely probably the same for you one of my favorite things about the work that i do is getting to hear all of these different perspectives and all of these different kind of lived experiences and then watching people listen to each other and take it in and thinking well actually you're gonna leave this session or, or this discussion a little bit more knowledgeable now on what somebody else's perspective of this situation is. And I think that is powerful because I don't think we communicate naturally very well, especially in, in schools and colleges and universities and places like that. Yeah. So creating that brave space, as, as your friend Phoebe would say, actually is is probably more important than anything else. Yeah. Wow. Okay. Yeah. Um, so... I've got another question for you here. It's around the biggest challenge. So what is the biggest challenge that you face when you're talking to young people about these topics? Now, I don't necessarily mean that they will bring to you, but maybe it could be institutional, whatever it is. What is it that really kind of stops the conversations from being able to happen? Uh, The biggest challenge I'm thinking about is um, it might just be the time that's allowed for these things. Schools have so much to do just there's just there's a, there's just so much and there's so there's so little budget and so little time and there's so much coordination that goes into this stuff and they have to choose they have to always having to choose between what to teach themselves what to get other people to teach and how and how much time and budget they have for each each topic you've seen how much how many topics we deliver and you know i would ideally never like to go in and start talking about contraception if I don't know that everybody knows about pregnancy 
And then I would never want to talk about pregnancy if I don't know that everyone in the room understands sexual anatomy. You know, there are levels. And even then, I wouldn't want to talk about sex at all if we've not talked about emotional vocabulary and, and or, or about relationship or about communication or respect or a million, a million other things. And so you, you're never going to get the time to go through that and to check the learning of each individual. And, to, and so what happens is you typically go and talk about pregnancy, contraception, puberty, STIs, and then you distill health relationships, if you're lucky, into an hour-long <laughs> yeah, those that last couple there, they're really important ones, right? Yeah, but yeah. you also need to get the messaging out. I so get it because I, I again, I have really similar problems, or not problems, but challenges with clients because the same. They've got limited amount of time. You know, D and I is one part of the strategy, and they know that it's really important. But so is health and well-being, and so is this and this and this. So it's about trying to make sure the messaging is getting out. Yeah. but still allowing that space for the conversations to grow because that's where people do their best learning is in those discussions. Yeah. What about um, this work that you do? What is it? Is there like one misconception that people think about the work that you do? Is there anything that people misunderstand? The first thing that just came to mind was, um, and I'm sure you've heard it, you've heard it on the news, you know, People thinking that if you talk about sex with young people, they're going to go and have sex. But if you talk about sex too early or teach, you know, kids in primary school how babies are made, they're going to go out and make babies. Like, it, <laughs> And, yeah, that's definitely the, the, the most common thing. And it's difficult. But the way I always describe it, I always have two kind of two ways to tackle that view is every adult knows a song or a movie that they watched when they were really young, too young, let's say, and they didn't understand any of the sexual references until they were older, right? Yeah. Some, sometimes you watch something you watched when you were kids, and like, oh my gosh, I never saw that before. <laughs> yeah, like, cartoon movies. Yeah. yeah, right? And didn't affect didn't affect them. It went over their head, quite rightly, and they grew up fine. And believe it or not, in the in the best sexual health lessons and the, with the best facilitator and the best resources, even graphic resources, what isn't meant for the young person will go over their head. The things that they're not ready emotionally to 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 learn, honestly, will go over their head. Uh, the other story I tell is uh, my aunt, the same aunt who got me into this work in the first place. When her youngest son was around four, he asked her how babies are made. And being a sex educator, she told him how babies are made in detail, every step. And he was four, and he ended the conversation with, um, I think we should talk about this when I'm a bit older. Right? <laughs> but here's, weird. here's a crucial part. About, I can't remember, I, I might get this wrong. I think it was about four years later. It might be, might have been a bit less. But later on, we were still very young, definitely eight or younger. He asked again how a baby's made. And she asked him what he remembered from the first time. And honestly, I can't remember what he said, but it was it was a typical four-year-old answer. So she told him absolutely everything in graffiti. I showed him how the, the head of the baby gets pushed through the vagina and the vagina open. She showed him everything. And four years later, he only remembered what a child could imagine. Does that make sense? 
Yeah. So she's talking to him in graphic detail, but a child's brain can only kind of picture what it can reference. Like it can only connect. That's why for a child, a baby grows in the tummy because I know what a tummy is and they can see a tummy and, and the tummy gets bigger. So it doesn't matter if you explain the womb and, and, and the vagina and it, they can't picture fallopian tubes. It doesn't matter. Like it just, it, it, they're fine. You know what I mean? And so he, his, his answer to her about, he, about what he remembered was something like literally what a typical. The head, kid. the head falls out <laughs> from the legs or something. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It, was, it was just like, so typical and but it was you know he just took what he could process at the age he was at i believe at least that is what happens and so i have no stress doing these lessons with with young people at any age because i know that they're only going to process what they can process don't get me wrong there are times when young people are exposed to things too soon from that could be from having um hang around with older children quite a lot it could be from um, accessing things on the internet that they're, they're not equipped to, to deal with. And, and these things can definitely 100% have impact. But they're usually repeat, re- repeated. They're usually, um, they're usually sustained things. And they're usually not, obviously, in an educational kind of safe setting with a professional. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, that's the main thing, the main misconception that people have, I think. Yeah, wow. I yeah, it's really into the analogy you use with the movies and and what you remember, and then watching them again as an adult, going, "Wow, I can't believe that I watched this as a kid, and I thought it was just this movie." That's really resonated with me because I guess I never really thought about it like that. Yeah, now, I do agree. Oh, sorry, I I do agree that that we should be teaching kids these sorts of things really early on because, like you say, this is about being comfortable to talk about them to build healthy boundaries and healthy communication habits so that when we do become old enough to start understanding it at a deeper level we've got the emotional toolkit to be able to do that um and i think for a lot of us especially you know going to a state school and i don't know about your school but like you said we're similar ages i remember sex education be in this ridiculous class and it was taught by I think it was taught by my chemistry teacher and no one respected the chemistry teacher anyway because she just didn't like her job and she didn't like children so it was all very clinical and and then we just didn't really take any of the information in yeah Um, and to go back to the the story I told about my auntie one more time is is, um I forgot the most perhaps perhaps the most crucial point based on what you just said is that he went back to her so he's now eight Who's def- that's definitely old enough to be embarrassed to talk to your mum about this stuff. But he went back to her. Why? Maybe that was because when he was four, she didn't balk at the idea. She just told him. And so at eight, he feels comfortable to go back to her. Now, how, how many eight-year-olds are asking their mums how a baby's made? Like, or are they embarrassed? If it's a boy, are they you know, embarrassed? What you just said is totally right. Like, talk about it early so that you, get, you, you let them know that it's okay to talk about and you take, out, you take the taboo out of it. I remember being in year six, the girls went off to learn about periods. The boys went off to learn about sex. Watched a video, and it said the man the man moves rhythmically on top of the woman. That's what I remember. Oh my god, I don't remember that. It was a video. It was a cartoon. It was a it was a, a video. I don't I didn't know what sex was after that. <laughs> like, and also, that's totally false. The rhythmic thing. <laughs> 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 I, I definitely have been yeah that that's not always been my experience not in always the past. Been, yeah. 
But I think, yeah, I really, I, do, I really do think that that kids in general just process what they can, what they're emotionally ready to process, and disregard. Yeah, their brains are just made to disregard the rest. Yeah, and I love that idea that you get to drip feed the right information as well. Yeah. And it's the same. Listen, we're obviously not going to get into it in detail now, but the idea of people and parents, and and I understand their point of view to some degree, especially when their tradition. Um, doesn't allow for this but that whole idea of teaching children about LGBT plus situations and and information is really essential at a young age because you need to understand it to be able to be respectful and to accept Mm -hmm. each other Mm -hmm. but yeah it it's an interesting one and, and the word taboo probably is the the tagline that's the word of this this podcast and I imagine it's probably a word you use quite a lot in your work that is a really that's a really fascinating thing to me the, the, that whole discussion around religious parents, especially, and their feeling about LGBTQ education in schools. Because I, 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 like you, think it's really, really important to learn about that stuff. But again, I, I, remember, t- I remember talking to um, a group of academics at the British Museum about this, and they were doing a project on sexuality and, and decolonizing sexuality. I used an example of one member of my family who's got kids, who I know is lovely, whose heart is lovely, and whose intentions are lovely, and who views people with, treats people with absolute kindness and everything, right? Who felt uncomfortable with the school teaching her daughters about homosexuality when she felt it was too too early. So she called me and was like, well, you know, what do you think? Am I right? Am I wrong? What are my rights? And blah, blah. Terrified of being seen as homophobic and would have been seen as homophobic by a lot of people and a lot of a lot of the news coverage you know and a lot of the conversation around parents who had concerns about this you know was painting them as, as the villains or as, as homophobic as anti-progressive and stuff and I think that kind of coverage and that the kind of conversation that we sometimes have in our on our side of things and in, in this industry or in this sector because we're we all everyone's in their echo um, chambers and, and in their bubble and and like knowing the kind of people I know and, and I'm sure you know too, lovely people with with genuine fears and concerns, misplaced perhaps, but still genuine, not hateful, not mean spirited, not you know. If we if we are um, change our approach sometimes to to allow, you know, you might be the person that someone calls to alleviate those fears, and we have to find a way of discussing this this stuff in a, in, a, in a way that's not only safe for the marginalised groups, this is going to sound crazy, but also safe for the, for the masses. No, I, you know I, I mean? so yeah. get it. I so get it. And it's, I mean, I know we're talking specifically about one topic here, but well, it is so important. Yeah. Yeah, of it's course it is, because support. the majority in whatever situation we're going to look at here are the people that can make the biggest difference. Yeah, and they're the, they're the majority. They're least practiced at talking about this stuff. Mm. Well, how could you expect them to talk to, to talk about it like safely, right? Mm. Like they they are they they have the least practice. So we have to allow them room to to make mistakes, and they've got to feel safe to make mistakes because what will happen otherwise is they don't talk about it. Yeah, yeah. This this situation here is a really great situation where this person, you know, like you said, heart of gold. The 
there's nothing in their mindset. It's just a misunderstanding around what it all is about. So they came to you because they had a safe space. And that now means that they were able to talk to their child more comfortably about it. And they were able to become more comfortable themselves. How incredible is that? If they didn't have you to come to and they didn't feel that they could bring this up, that child could have missed out on a really great conversation that then helps them in their generation. Yeah. 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 And that's, yeah, that's what we all need to, I, I'm, a, I'm in a privileged position in some ways because of my upbringing, you know, because um, none of this stuff that we, the stuff that we talk about all the time, for me growing up, none of this is a, is a foregone conclusion. None of the, uh, the vocabulary I have around this stuff or the understanding I have, or even the political views I have none of that is a foregone conclusion and and I feel fortunate that I've just met the people along the way who have shaped my views on this stuff because I could have turned out very different and Mm. and I've definitely been in in that place when I was when I was younger just not really understanding stuff and you know not having that exposure to different perspectives when I was young being called gay was was a Oh my God, the mm. worst insult in the whole world, you know. But but I carry that with me, that experience of knowing what that feels, what it is to to feel that way. I I don't disregard that now that my views have completely changed. Like I I still remember that, that I could still hold those views, you know. And and mm. and so I'm I think, yeah. A lot of the time, a lot of the time when I go when I when I work with people in our sector, a lot of the time it's just me saying. It's just me challenging that that side of things and often taking that point of view, even though it's not what I believe. It's like I'm trying to explain where it might come from or what might be behind it, because it's not always hate, you know. Mm-hmm. I think it's really interesting hearing you talk about that, because, you know, I grew up very working class and, and I'm so grateful for that experience just because of some of the great values that it taught me. And then I, you know, like you, I moved to London when I was quite young and just got exposed to so many different things. Mm-hmm. Um, and fortunately, I embraced all of that and, and I got to kind of make it part of who I am. But it's really interesting. I do think that because my family are fantastic and they're so great and we have some really great conversations now, but it wasn't always that way. Mm-hmm. It was very much the eye rolling. Oh, here's how he goes again on a soapbox. Oh, this yeah, yeah. isn't that bad. And this, that, and the other, but we have some really great conversations now because I guess partially because I've been relentless, <laughs> but also because I can, I see both sides. I grew up with that mindset. Um, and there's, there was no harm done in a way that was yeah. just the way that we were. And then I've also been so fortunate to be surrounded by so many different types of people with different life experiences that now I can communicate really well with with the... I don't think the word opposition is right. I think just people that think differently to to the way uh, some of the people I work with now think. It's really given me a leg up, not just for the business, but also with my friends and my family and, and people I have relationships with because... I can see both sides now and it makes me, yeah. you used the word kind a moment ago. It does make me much kinder in, in a way to listen to their point of view rather than just going, oh, well, no, this is the right way because this is about human rights and this is yeah, this. Yeah. this. Yeah. That's not helpful when you're having a conversation. You you can't get people to understand that because they've never seen it. They, they've never experienced exactly. it. So for them, that is their reality. 
but yeah, it's um, it's always really interesting having those conversations. But yeah, definitely the relentlessness was probably <laughs> such a massive pain <laughs> for my family when I was growing up. Uh, but yeah, I mean, they're definitely coming around to it now, which is really nice. It's nice to have some really good conversations with them. Yeah. Oh God, I could talk to you all day about this. Um, but I am. I'm. I've got one or two more questions that I want to ask you because what I'd really love is to get some advice or some tips mm-hmm. that people can take away because that's one of the things people like about this podcast is that they can genuinely do something with it. Okay. So I think one of my questions is what practical piece of advice could you give someone? who's maybe listening to this podcast, they're wanting to know how to get more involved in these types of conversations, or perhaps they want to start a conversation just to open these types of uh, conversations about sex education or relationships, maybe with their kids, maybe with their partner, with some friends, or even in the workplace. What practical piece of advice could you give them to get them started? Nice, easy one for you there. (laughs) I'll tell you what, I was, I'll just start talking. This is what I was thinking as you were talking. And I'm, I'm, it's not a fully formed piece of advice, but it might become fully formed within the sentence. Who knows? <laughs> okay. So I think we talked a lot about like um, the discussion style and being open and being, creating a safe space and all that stuff. And all of that is like really, really important. But one thing I remember from the taboo or not taboo sessions is, you know, everyone's opinions equal, everyone's opinions valid and, and you challenge each other safely and all that stuff but there is also this this ribbon of what is fact and I wouldn't be able to to responsibly facilitate those discussions if I didn't have the knowledge of when it's time to insert a fact you know we can we can you and I can go back and forth about consent all day but at some point it's like well actually this is the law we can talk about Another topic, you know, and at some point they might be like, well, actually, no, this is this is fact, you know. Uh, sometimes that's what helps guide conversation so it doesn't get too far in one way or too far in the other. And so I think if someone was going to start having these kind of conversations with even with, with friends, I would say arm yourself with some really good, like, facts. Mm. Um, and then the art in this work is is how you take that fact and articulate it in a way that it's digestible, right? And I think for that, there are people who've already done a lot of that work. Um, there's a, a website called bish.uk run by a guy called Justin, who I know, um, but it's a really, really good resource. He, he, he writes really well and, and simply. And so it's like, you might be facilitating that discussion, but use other resources. For example, bish.uk, he's got, resor- he's got illustrations and he writes in quite a nice, nice way. Because I think a lot of the time you you can know the facts or you can know what you're trying to get across, but that the art is where how you word it, and so, and I think that's why people like us get good at this stuff. It's not necessarily because we are well, we're not. We're no more. I'm no better at relationships than anyone else. (laughs) Do you know what I mean? Like, but I spend so much time talking about it that I've been able that now I'm able to articulate things off the top of my head in a really clear way because I'm practiced at articulating these types of views, these types mm-hmm. of, of facts and, and, and stuff. And that's, if I was going to start from scratch now, that's where I'd start my, where I'd spend my time writing and rewriting how to explain this idea and that idea. And again, going back to the, our time in the, in the office back in the, 
in the day is a lot of the time it's how do I say this? It wasn't always like, you know, what resources there. We're not always writing lesson plans. Sometimes just how do I explain this small idea in the most succinct way? And I found actually, because I do a lot of work with people with special needs, normally when I um, create, I'll, I'll make a lesson plan for like year 10 mainstream. And then I make a lesson plan for year 10 SEN. And then I make a lesson plan for like similar um, development um, but with someone with learned, severe learning disabilities. And it's always the wording that I use in that one that I end up copying and pasting into my other ones because that's when I've really tried to make it clear and simple and understandable. And it's like, it's usually that, that's the, that's when it's, I get it right. And, and But I say, yeah, arm yourself with, with facts. Decide the facts you, 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 you're trying to get across and spend some time thinking about how to articulate it in the most simple way. And you haven't got to, that doesn't mean that you then go and just give a speech. You just have those articulations in your pocket for when they when you need them, you know? You just get practiced at that. Yeah. No, I do you know it's listening to that, it's really funny because people always say to me, Oh, you're you're so good at what you do and, and whatever. And I'm like, Yeah, but do you know what? I'm probably not any better really than anyone else, but I'm very passionate and I do lots of research. Yeah. Lots of research on the topics that I talk about because I want to make sure I'm having the biggest possible impact on the conversations I'm having with people. You have to be credible when you're doing yeah. this. You have to know, like you say, you have to have those facts. And, and like you say, you probably won't even use them a lot of the time, but getting to really understand them allows you to talk really eloquently about subjects that could be a little bit divisive perhaps they're taboo or whatever else so yeah I think that's a great piece of advice and I would just add to that reputable data reputable yeah, of course. because there's so much misinformation out there yeah. um so you know people can take the information from wherever they like but you know social media is just a pocket yeah. all sorts of rubbish so it's about finding those reputable places um and really starting to learn that and and having conversations with people like you is a really great way for people to learn those sorts of things not that i'm going to suggest that thousands of people give you a call and, and ask for lots of free advice <laughs> <laughs> but i do think that there is something in that i've certainly taken a lot away from the conversations i have with people that are doing work like yourself or, or we spoke to joanne from a woman's centre a couple of weeks ago, mm. um, uh, even talking on our first podcast to a friend of mine that's trans and his experience, that's topping up my knowledge constantly of what it's like in those situations yeah. because that's not my experience. Yeah, oh, true. And also making, when you're talking to individuals, it's really important to, to get a breadth of experience from, from, from all sorts of individuals as well. And sometimes we can fall into a trap of... Um, and I'm saying I've fallen into the trap of, you know, I've doing work around autism and um, spoke to some autistic people and parents of autistic people. In this occasion, very quickly felt like an expert, you know. <laughs> and then I think I was I was saying something and well, I was, I was if I was talking or if I was watching something, but I just heard someone had a really key, really passionate plea that, you know, not everyone is this, this, the same. There's, there is no version of, of autism that allows you to understand all autistic people and then and obviously that's an obvious thing but i think it's really important to get a, as wide a breadth as you can of understanding from in any of these kind of topics yeah and i'm really thinking you're an expert you know 
yeah and that and that's a really good lesson to learn in the type of work that we do I learned that very early on is that whilst this is my business and this is what I'm passionate about and and um I learn a lot I listen to a lot of podcasts I read a lot of things I go to a lot of events I watch a lot of webinars I take part in a lot of different types of learning um there's a really interesting book um that I bought a little while ago and it's around hidden disabilities Mm -hmm. um and there's a concept that I understood but when I read the book it made just complete sense into how to then articulate it to other people when we're talking mm-hmm. about things like that. Um, and the book very simply addressed lots of different types of hidden disabilities, obviously autism spectrum and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. And the key takeaway from every single experience where this person has interviewed each different person is we're all different. So my experience is going to be extremely different to someone else's experience, or it's going to be very close to this person's experience. So you will never be an expert, even in a topic that is very close to you and, and your experience, yeah. because it's going to be different. To other that's, when, when you know that, that's you realise that's where the value is. The value isn't that I'm an expert, because also uh, medical, anything medical, anything scientific changes, because, you know, science moves on and stuff, and, and society moves on. And so the the value isn't in being an expert. The value is in being passionate and being articulate. That's where the value is, mm. and, the, and 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 being well researched, right? Yeah. But it's not yeah. in being a, an expert because if that was it, anyone could be an expert. But they, will they have the passion and will they have the the um the ability to to relay that in an engaging way? No, that's what the value is of 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 Zing is that it's how engaging you are and how passionate you are, not not how just you know not really how knowledgeable you are in mm. a, in a in a weird way do you know what I mean yeah yeah no absolutely and i think that's the same with the work that you do with tailor education you know you're able to communicate these messages these people can go online and and do yeah. lots of research and find out all of this stuff but they won't necessarily take it in in the same way it's about finding a way to click with someone's learning and to yeah. really get them to reflect yeah and that's something that clearly you're doing very well. So, um, well done. <laughs> <laughs> <Thank you. laughs> um, that's unfortunately that is all we've got time for, which makes me really sad because I want to talk about all the other topics that you cover. Is there anything that you would like our listeners to kind of go away with? If you were like, actually, this is the one takeaway I'd love for them to have from this podcast. Is there anything that you think? this is going to help us to keep this conversation going yeah beware of beware of the echo chamber and yeah try i guess just try try to um argue even to yourself the counter argument because it'll help you be more articulate in your argument yeah and i should remember that too yeah yeah I think these sorts of conversations help us to remind ourselves to do all of these yeah, things as well. Sure. We're human. We're not perfect. Yeah. We're just passionate. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> That's the difference. Yeah. Um, yeah, echo chambers. I repeat that. I echo that back to you because it yeah. is really important. And whilst um, we agree on a lot of things, there are things that we don't agree on. And, oh, and yeah. I always find those conversations really helpful. But that's the thing is what this is what's so important is that there's clearly something, some moment, some first conversation where we disagreed and we showed to each other that we were going to be okay with us taking opposite views and we weren't going to be upset with each other and we weren't gonna we were gonna listen and we we're gonna like there was clear I don't remember when it was, but there must have been one conversation that 
where I decided, where I was felt comfortable to share my opposing view and you felt comfortable. And so it happened again and again. And the same thing with my, with my colleague Phoebe. There's definitely times when I've shared things with people and realized, wait, this isn't someone I can explore with. Because I'm only looking to learn and, and be corrected if I'm if I'm wrong. And, and but but like you have to feel safe to do it. And it's really it's really valuable to practice that. To find those people. I think that's why it's so exciting to talk to you about this stuff because because I know that if I say something that you completely fundamentally disagree with, you are not going to change your view on me as a person. You're not going to decide that I'm a bad person. You're going to say, I know Gareth's a good person, so I'm now more passionate to teach him about this because I believe that if he can if he can get it, he's going to appreciate that he gets it now because I know that at his heart he's a good person. And that's how we need to approach these conversations. Is that I know there's a good person I'm talking to, and their view on this thing, however toxic it may feel to me, or negative it may feel to me, or even triggering it might be to me, I don't decide that they're a bad person because they hold a view that I that ch- that challenges me. I'm going to keep going because I know that if I can get it right, that they'll they'll appreciate having it cracked, you know. Mm. And I don't think our politics and our media and our social media really allow for that nuance we are continually defining each other by our views and by our politics and our differences and our differences yeah mm. but we're literally defining people's core by by some view they have on trans rights mm. as important as trans rights are you know what i mean as 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 important as that is can you define someone's soul by their view, not that I necessarily believe in a soul, but you know their view on on trans rights. Can you can you decide someone is a bad person because they disagree with you on that? Yeah, I always um, <laughs> my partner disagrees with this sentiment. Um, we've had very different lives, but my partner yeah. disagrees. My sentiment is, and and sometimes I have to really try hard to remember this because sometimes people piss me off. Yeah. But. Um, I genuinely 100% believe that there's no such thing as a bad person. Yeah. Genuinely. Okay. I believe that there are challenges and ways that we have been brought up that change the way or, or, or make us behave in certain ways and that there are mental health challenges. Yeah. But yeah. That, that genuinely is how I feel about things and trying to convince my partner of this is my lifelong mission. I think, you know, I, I think I agree with you. I haven't, I haven't thought about it for long enough, but I think I agree with that idea. Uh, the first thing I thought when you said it was, well, mental illness, you know, when you said that. So so I think that there are, I think I agree with you, but I, what I'm sure about, as hearing you say that, is that it's better to move through the world with that view than not. That makes sense. It's better to move through the world as if you have that view. Doesn't mean you don't, you doesn't mean you're an idiot and you, you don't, look after yourself and you don't stay safe and recognize that some people are doing bad things in the world and may do bad things to you or whatever else. But like, yeah, I, I think it's better if, if we move through the world with that, with that view, you'll definitely have better conversations mm, yeah, and longer lasting ones. Life's certainly easier with that mindset. I won't lie. Well, Cause that hasn't you. always been my mindset, but it's yeah. definitely easier now. Wow. Okay. That's it. Um, thank Great. you so much. Thank you. I hope it was a good episode, everyone. <laughs> I think they'll agree that it was. I think we've got some really good takeaways there, um, some really good food for thought. And I think for me, I learned a lot. And I imagine people that aren't 
anywhere near this type of work. Maybe they run their own business. Maybe they're just listening because they're interested in hearing more about it. I'd be very surprised if people didn't really start to think about how they can start to make sure that these conversations are happening a little bit more. Okay, cool. Amazing. Thank you so much. What another amazing episode talking to another inspirational person. What Gareth shares, his thoughts, his knowledge, his experience is so incredible. And I hope that you've taken away just as much as I have from that conversation. If you're interested in finding out more about Gareth and Taylor Education, then head online and search for Taylor Education now. And if you're interested in learning more about Zing Learning and you want to see how we can come in and support your diversity and inclusion work, then head to our website, which is zingrevolution.co.uk. That's it. That's all we've got time for this week, unfortunately. We're looking forward to seeing you on the next one.